guys can grab a seat. You know, visible and invisible realities. Our life is, is completely saturated with both. And both things, visible things, invisible things, they both uh, have substance in our lives and our decisions. Let me give you an example. There's a lot of things that you don't see in life that, that are very important to you. Uh, one of them is oxygen. You know, you don't really see it, but your lungs need it. It's, it's pretty important. Another one is gravity, right? Anybody feel that this morning when you woke up, that, that gravity thing? You're like, oh, yep, it's working. Um, gravity is a thing. It's a very important thing. It's a thing keeping you from floating away, right? And you don't, you don't see it, but yet there it is. It's, it's something that we believe to be a reality, even though it's not something that's entirely visible. Uh, how about your own consciousness, your own, awareness, your own awareness of self? I mean, you can see a brain physically, but you can't see someone's personness, consciousness. It's an unseen reality, yet we believe and know that it is true. What about love? We can see people, we can see humans, but love is not something we see, yet love is one of the most important driving features of our life. It's something that we all want, it's something we all need, we all desire, we pursue. So it's, it's an unseen thing that has a massive substance in our life. So the things that we don't see, they're often more real than the things that we do see. Would you agree? We live in, within dimensions, right? And, and we, as, as humans, we have a limited dimensionality. And most people would agree that there is something outside of the dimensionality that we can comprehend. And that there are very real things that transcend that. So not only are invisible things important to us, future things, future things also have some substance in our life. Future things, even though they haven't happened yet, they, they bring weight, they carry weight in how we live our life, what decisions we make. So for, for example, uh, right now I'm, I'm 34 and I have three kids, but I know that in seven years I'll be 41 and my kids will all be teenagers. Praise God, I think. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. It's going to be good. We're, we're being optimistic about the teenage thing. It's going to be good. <laughs> Pastor's kids. What could go wrong? Um, so so that's, a, that's a future reality, right? Future reality. But that future reality, even though it hasn't happened, it has substance in my life right now. Why? Because I, I'm thinking now, how do I want to raise my kids so that when they're teenagers, they love Jesus and, 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 and are, are walking after the Lord. I mean, the, even though it's a future thing, even though it's something that hasn't happened yet, it still has weight in my life. It still has substance in my life. Uh, you know, four years ago, we started this church. We, we launched September of 2019. We're just about to turn four. Praise God. And in the lead up to that time, we, there was no Philippi, right? It was just an idea. But that idea had substance, and that substance led us to organize our life and our time in such a way that we were setting the table to begin a church family in Grants Pass called Philippi. So you could say that this future thing, this thing that was not yet seen, had substance in our present decisions. I'll give you another example. I was watching a documentary recently about uh, this tech startup in Silicon Valley, and uh, it was really interesting to me. They were, just, they were just talking about how much money is being spent in this tech startup. I mean, millions of dollars. How many people are employed in this tech startup? Thousands and thousands of people work for this company. And they, they, went, um, you know, they went public and sold shares and millions and millions of dollars. People are spending all this money on this company. And then they said this very interesting thing at one point. Well, we actually haven't sold anything yet. And I thought, that's crazy. It's crazy that you could sell millions of dollars worth of shares to people and actually have not even sold a single thing. Now, why are they able to sell shares into a company that is not yet profitable and hasn't even sold a single thing? And the answer is because they have faith in a future reality that that technology that they're developing is going to make a lot of money. I would call that faith in future reality. And, and you can say, well, because it's future, it's not real. Well, it seems pretty real to the people that are buying the stock, right? My point is simply this, that, that even things that are unseen and even things that have not yet happened, they still have substance and weight in our life. Have you noticed that? 
the decisions that we make. We as humans, we are willing to sacrifice things now if we think that there's a more, uh, a greater reality ahead that, that, that it might pay off for. This is just very simple logic. People shape life now based on what will happen later. This is, listen, this is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things unseen. I want you to just, just hold on to that. Now, faith that is convinced to the point of action is the biblical definition, I believe, of faith. Faith is one of those words, we just, in Christian circles, we just toss it around all the time. Faith, 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 faith. And faith is a word that even our culture is about. Like, they're cool with it. They like faith. You know, like you can sell faith uh, stickers and faith signs and people will put them up. Even secular atheists are like, yeah, faith, that's cool. You know, people are all about faith. People love faith. They have faith in their faith, right? So as Christians, we kind of need to get around the edges and say, but what's Christian faith? What's the difference between Christian faith and just faith in general? And I would say that faith for the Christian is more than just kind of a, a hopeful desire that something might work out a certain way. I'll put it this way. Christian faith is letting that which is not seen and not fully materialized have loudest voice and value in the dictates of life's decisions. As Christians, we live in this way where we go, you know what? My value orbits around something that you can't see and that has not happened yet. And you could say that's foolish or that's crazy, but the funny thing is we all do it. We all do it every day. We all live in many ways for the future. We live in many ways for unseen things. We just do it. And when Jesus came into this world, he was the ultimate language of God. Jesus was not only a preacher, he was literally God. He was God in human flesh, God incarnate. And so as he walked around and as he interacted and as he lived, we are literally seeing the reality of God's nature ex uh, expressed and manifested in a language we can understand, which is personhood. And what Jesus did in his preaching and in his life was he peeled back the curtain from our dimension into God's dimension to a level that had never before happened. I mean, up at Sinai, like God did that a little bit with the, with the law, but, but ultimately Jesus was the ultimate revelation, God expressing ultimate reality, heavenly reality, outside our dimension, breaking into this world through the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, the kingdom of God was literally breaking into this world through the person of Jesus Christ, and we learn about that. Now, Jesus called his followers to faith. He called them to faith. But faith was not merely a call to acknowledge truth conceptually, was it? Faith was not merely a call to acknowledge truth conceptually. It was a call to respond to truth actively and reorient your life to a degree that reflects the substance of that reality. Jesus is saying, follow me. So it's faith in action. What Jesus did when he walked around, when he preached, when he interacted, and what Jesus does when we read about him on the page is he brings us out of a limited dimension and brings us into a more full picture of reality. Let me give you an example that I use way too much, and it's the example of the matrix, okay? But it's just so good. There's no better analogies out there than the matrix. And all the Gen Z is like, what's the matrix? No. Uh, or they've made new ones, I guess, but I'm talking the original matrix, you know? Um, okay, so, so you have... A man who's living his life assuming that all that he is seeing and experiencing and taking in in his senses is reality, right? Normal life. And then in an instant, he wakes up and he realizes that everything he ever lived was a lie. That everything he lived was actually a dream, essentially. He wakes up to this, uh, this is going to sound really dumb if you haven't seen the movie, he wakes up to this robot world far-fetched? I don't think so. Okay, have you seen AI? Okay. Robot world, and it turns out he is essentially a human battery, that all of humanity has been turned into batteries, and they're in this comatose sleep state, living a dream that they think is reality. So, what's the point? When Neo wakes up, he has to make a decision. Am I going to embrace the expanded reality that I've just been awakened to, or am I just going to go back to living the way things were? So, Jesus he opens people's eyes to see that there is spiritual warfare. 
that, that this world is being ruled by the prince of the power of the air, that we are headed towards uh, destruction, that, that we are at odds with the perfect and righteous God. Jesus opens that door, and like Neo, we're sort of standing there going, okay, can I unsee that, or will I respond to that? The, the, the act of Christian faith is simply saying, I've seen that, and now I'm going to respond accordingly. I can't unsee what I've seen. God has revealed this thing to me, and now I need to act accordingly. Uh, maybe a better example than the matrix is the one Jesus gave when he said the kingdom of heaven is like this. He said it's like a man who was plowing a field. And the assumption that, that you would obviously know in this, this parable is that the man plowing a field is poor. And he's plowing another man's field. He's being paid to plow another man's field, which puts him pretty low in the socioeconomic scale. And so he is paid. Uh, he probably owns a few things, maybe a small house with his family and maybe a plow and a few tools. So he goes and he plows this field. And he's just thinking about making a few cents for that day. And as he's plowing the field, he rams into something something hard, and he stops and he gets down on the ground and he digs up whatever it is. He digs up and he finds a treasure. It's, he, founds, he finds a treasure in this field that's so much more valuable than really anything he's ever seen in his life. It's like his entire life savings combined over and over again. He sees the treasure and all of a sudden what happens? His entire value system changes because he realized, wow, what I thought was so important before, plowing a field, getting a few cents, all of a sudden everything has changed. Because this treasure in the field is so valuable. All I got to do is figure out how to get the treasure. So what does he do? He buries it again. He goes home and he lists his house. And he sells his dog and, or whatever. And he sells his plow. And his wife's like, you're crazy. What do you think? You're out of your mind. Why are you doing this? Why are you selling our stuff? And you're like, no, it's okay, babe. I'm going to buy this field. <laughs> right? And she's going, you're out of your mind. You're going to buy that field? Yeah, that field over there, the one that's full of nothing but lava rock and juniper? Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, that's what I want. Okay, you're, you're insane. And his friends and his family and his mom and his dad and his counselor, they're, they're counseling him. No, don't do it. That's stupid. You need to hold on to your money. You need to keep your investment. You need to keep your plow so you can make more money and have a good retirement. And he said, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. You haven't seen what I've seen. You haven't experienced what I've experienced. Uh, there's something in that field that I have to have. So he sells everything he has. And he goes to the man and he says, here's everything I have. I want to buy your field. And the man says, you're insane. Take it. Now, what's happening there? What's happening there is that this man that sold everything he had, he has had a complete shift in his value system. Christian faith is not, boy, I hope that God is real and I'm just going to kind of like like grimace and hold on and say, well, maybe everything will work out and maybe, maybe God really did send his son Jesus and maybe he really did die for my sins. That's, that's not Christian faith. Christian faith is I found the treasure of all treasures and I'll sell everything to buy the whole field. Is that really a hard stretch or is that just duh? And see, this is, what, this is why the Christian life looks bizarre to the world, Right? Christian life looks bizarre to the world because they see us selling our plow and they think you're stupid. And we say, no, you don't understand. You don't understand what I found. You don't understand what I'm gaining. So Jesus, he had these interactions with these individuals and one of them was this rich man, remember? And, 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 the, and the rich man's like, hey, what do I gotta do to inherit eternal life? And you know, uh, Jesus gives him some law and he's like, yeah, I did that, did that, did that. And he says, okay, one thing you're lacking, go sell everything you have. And give it to the poor. And he didn't say that because that's how we get to heaven. He said that because he wanted to expose that this man hadn't found the treasure yet. Because what happened? The man went away sorrowful. So Christian faith is this. Christian faith is I see the treasure and I'm going to sell everything and buy the field. That's Christian faith. That's why Christians do bizarre things. Things that the world don't understand. Christ see, Christian faith is the substance of things hoped for. Christian faith is when we say, I am so confident that the treasure to come is greater than the life I'm living now. I will give up everything, not to earn it, but in response to it. That's Christian grace. I was reminded by, by Roger this week of how Greg Kokel explains Christian faith. He said, Christian faith is like this. Uh, uh, you know, you see someone walking across the tightrope across the Grand Canyon with the wheelbarrow and... Uh, and someone says, hey, you think that guy can make it? And you go, yeah, I think he can make it. I believe that. 
That's American faith. That's, that's faith in general. Yeah, I believe he can do it. Christian faith is great, climbing the wheelbarrow. Do you see the difference? See the difference? Christian faith is, I'm not just going to believe that guy can walk across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope with a wheelbarrow. I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. And that was what Jesus called his followers to do. He didn't say, hey, just agree that I am God. Just agree that I am king, and then you're good, and then you can be saved and live your life however you want. He said, no, 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 no. You have to trust me entirely. Total allegiance to me. This is the reality of Christian faith. Now, why am I talking all about, all about this? Because the subject of our, our text, if you didn't notice, is faith. It's the reality of faith. The burden of our text today is to define true Christian faith, setting it apart from some of the less helpful definitions of faith that you and I uh, have heard in our life. The burden of our text is to declare why faith in Christ is superior and worth having. So, Today's argument really begins chapter 11, which if you're familiar with your Bibles, chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. It's going to, from this point forward, it's going to give example after example after example from the Old Testament of people who found the treasure and dug it up and bought the field. It's going to give example after example of people who were saved by faith, through, by grace through faith, people that took God at his word, people that said, God, I believe that when you said something, you mean it and that your word is ultimate reality. People that say, God, I'm choosing to listen to you above everything else. And what verse 1 through 3, our assignment for today, what it's going to do is it's going to help us frame all of chapter 11. So it's important that we kind of stop. That's why we're only taking three verses. Kind of stop and, and, and dissect these verses. Now, before we do that, just a little bit of introduction. Let me get you into the background of why the book of Hebrews was written. Some of you guys are just joining us for the first time this morning. Some of you guys have been tracking. But I just want to remind you of why the book of Hebrews has been written. You know, you pick up your Bible, you open it to the book of Hebrews, you start reading. That was not written as a textbook. This was a letter written to people by a person, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written pastorally into a particular moment in a particular time, a particular set of things that were happening. So let me, let me try to bring you into the, the headspace of the letter before we, we dive more into these three verses. I want you to imagine for me this morning that you are a young Jewish person who grew up in the, the, the 50s and 60s A.D., okay? At the particular time that they think this letter was written is 65 80s, about 30 plus years after Jesus died and rose and ascended. And you're a, you're a Jewish person who grew up in Judaism. And for you, Judaism was not just your faith expression. It was not just a religious component of your life. It was your entire life. Everything in your calendar, everything in your family, everything in your conversation revolved around this system of approaching God that we would now call Judaism. So you grew up going every Saturday to synagogue and interacting, and all of your friends were part of that synagogue, and, and you would open the law, and you would hear the law written, and you would have conver conversation in synagogue, and then multiple times in the year, you would make a pilgrimage up the hill to Jerusalem, and you would go, and you would look up at this colossal feature, this wonder of the world, who is it, wonder of the world called the temple. Guys, the temple was impressive. It was huge. It was massive. Herod's temple, people would travel from thousands of miles to come and celebrate these, these feast days. And you would go into the temple and you would bring a sacrifice and it was tangible and it was physical. And you would see the priest and he was decked out and he was um, impressive and he was, and he was tenured and he was experienced. And there was this whole feeling around the system of religion that you loved, you cherished, and you liked it. The, the fact that you could see the blood being shed and know, okay, my sin is covered for now. And that that priest, he's got me, he's taken me into the, and, there, and there's this, this impressive established sense about the temple and all of the system. You like it. You grew up liking it. It's like Christmas. I enjoy it. I look forward to it. This is just it's part of life. And then at one point in your, 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 your mid-30s or whatever, you're, you're doing life and this, this person comes into your town and he begins to preach a message. Now, you grew up hearing about Messiah, right? You heard stories when you were a kid. Oh, yeah, Messiah is going to come, and he's going to militaristically reestablish Israel as this great superpower, kick Rome out. Yeah, we're all waiting for that. But then this preacher comes and starts declaring to you in the synagogue about this person named Jesus who was Messiah. 
That he came declaring another kingdom, a kingdom that is breaking into this world right now, and that this Jesus, he claimed to be God. And that this Jesus died on a cross to atone once and for all for sin. And this preacher says, and then after he died once for all, he went into the real holy place and he made once for all sacrifice. He he uh, mediated between you and God and he has risen from the dead, proving who he is. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back to, to manifest and consummate his kingdom. Good news, right? And you're sitting here going, this has to be right. And then the Holy Spirit comes in and, and, and saves you, and you have this radical moment where you, you, you say, okay, it's all about Jesus. He's the Messiah. I'm ready. I'm in. Okay. But then things start to get hard because you've adopted Jesus. You said yes to Jesus, but you've got this lifestyle, and not just this lifestyle, you've got this entire ecosystem that that you're so enmeshed in that is so connected to Judaism. And here's the problem. Judaism wants nothing to do with Christianity, and Christianity is is incompatible with Judaism in this way that it was in the first century. So, things begin to get hard for you. And you're excited, you have Jesus, you found the treasure in the field, but your family has kicked you out of their life. You're no longer allowed to go into the synagogue. You're no longer allowed to go into the temple. You're marked. Your quality of life drops. Your social system becomes strained. And and there's this conflict in you because you love Jesus and you believe he's Messiah and you believe he's the high priest, but you miss the tangible features of the temple. And you miss going to synagogue and you miss your family. And you've not only been ostracized, you're being persecuted now. Not only by Judaism, but by Rome. You've become the scum of society. And so there's conflict in your heart. And you you gather with the saints, you gather with the body, but but you you and the others have begun to neglect the gathering of the saints and you've begun to, to drift from one another. And there's been people in your group that have even been going back to Judaism. And turning back from Christ, and you begin to think to yourself, maybe I could syncretize the two. Maybe I could mesh them together. Maybe I could take Jesus and take this old religious system, and I could put them together, and I could have both. And so this individual that first preached the gospel to you catches the news that you're struggling, and that everyone in your assembly, everyone in your ecclesia is struggling. And so this pastor, the pastor that led you to faith, he picks up the pen and he sits down and he begins to write the book of Hebrews to you and to your local church. And why does he write the book of Hebrews? He writes it to you to encourage you to hold on to Jesus. Don't go back. Why? Because there is only forgiveness in Christ. Only Jesus is the high priest. Only Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. The temple is it's all going to be destroyed. Jesus went into the real holy of holies. The author says in Hebrews 4, 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. This is review. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He says in 16 of, of chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. He said in chapter 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He's saying, hold on. Hold on to Jesus. I know it feels like the substance of the temple is perhaps what you're aching for, but it's not reality. Hold on to the more real things. I know you can't see them yet. And I know they're unseen and they haven't happened in their future promises, but but tether yourself to these things. See, what they were doing is they were tempted to fall in worship and love the shadow rather than the body simply because the body was not yet there. He says, hey, your anchor, it goes beyond the veil. Hold on to it. Don't hold on to the old religion. And then last week, and and I want you to join me here, last week in 1034, this pastor writes to this struggling and persecuted Jewish congregation. He writes in 1034, therefore do not throw away your confidence. 
which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. These are future things, things that have not yet been given but have been promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. So he's talking about future realities. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now look at verse 39 closely. But we are not of those who shrink back. See, this is what was the temptation of the Hebrews. They were tempted to shrink back from Christ. He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And this is the backdrop to our text this morning. Let's read it one more time. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, the author is going to pause and give explanation to what kind of faith it is that will give them the perseverance they need. And here's what it is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are invisible. The call of Hebrews is to hold on. It's to hold on to Jesus. Now, we've said this multiple times. You might be thinking, Sam, I'm not a Jewish Christian. But the temptation, listen to me, the temptation of every follower of Jesus is to let what is right in front of us seem more real than that which will someday come. To let the things we can see visibly have more weight in our life than things that we cannot presently see. The call of the Christian life is to live in light of a greater reality. And that is what the substance of things hoped for means. So let's move this really quickly because I just did the longest introduction ever. But I only got three verses to cover, so we're good. It's fine. So it breaks up like this. Our text breaks up like this. First of all, what faith is in verse 1. And then secondly, why we should have faith, verse 2 and 3. And there's two reasons we'll see. So let's just dive right in. What faith is. Let's look at verse 1. You guys know this verse. You've probably heard it quoted a million times if you've been around church. Look at verse 1. Let's break it down. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, notice there's a symmetry to this verse, meaning he's saying kind of the same thing twice. He's saying it a little bit differently. And it's kind of, I'll be honest, like if, it's, if you're honest, it's kind of a confusing sentence. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, or faith is the, faith is the insurance of things hoped for. What does that mean? What exactly does that mean? Let's, let's kind of interact with it a little bit. First of all, this is not a full definition of faith. What this is, is the author calling them to hold on, ho- calling them to hold fast, stopping for a moment to give them an explanation of what kind of faith will get them to the end. There is a kind of faith that will not save. And there is a kind of faith that will prove to be saving faith. And so the author stops here and he says, let me tell you what kind of faith will get you to the end. Let me tell you what kind of faith will get you to the end. And the, the, the answer is an assured faith. Now that word assurance, if you're reading the ESV, King James translates it substance. If you have the NIV, it translates it being sure. But it's the word hypostasis. Hypostasis basically can mean, um, it basically can be translated Assurance, firmness, confidence, documents establishing ownership, a guarantee, a proof, or as King James writes it, substance. So what does that mean? It means that what he is not saying is he is not saying faith is when you kind of grimace, cross your fingers, and just sort of hope that maybe Jesus really is who he said he is and that we're all going to live in his kingdom forever. Now, that's, that's the worldly definition of faith. You know, like, I hope I get a parking spot. Like, I, I hope that, that, that when, you know, I, I win a million dollars. I don't know, maybe. I have, I have faith. That's not Christian faith. This word, hypostasis, it is an absolute confidence. It's total surety. It's, it's saying that Christian faith, the kind of faith that will cause you to endure, is positive It's substantive. It's weighty. 
substance to it. This is Christian faith, saving faith. It's not a flimsy faith, okay? That means it's not illogical. You know, a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, will argue for the gospel by saying, just got to believe. Jesus never asked people to turn their brains off. Our faith, Christian faith, is not a flimsy faith. It's not a faith that if you start to put any logic to it, it breaks down. Absolutely not. In fact, it's very logical. It's very logical. This kind of faith is not a phony faith, not a just, I'm going I'm to say it till I believe it, like the little girl in, in Miracle on 34th State. I believe, I believe, it's silly, but I believe. Like, it's not a, that's a phony faith. Okay? It's, not, it's not a flippant faith, which is kind of the, the version of faith that, that's been sold in American Christianity for about 30 years through the easy believism movement, which kind of says, hey, all you got to do is just believe that Jesus is God and, and you're good rather than actually believing and following that he is God. It's not a feelings-based faith. The author here is not saying, um, this is true if you feel like it's true, which is kind of the way our generation thinks. Have you noticed that? If you feel like something's true, then it must be true because we've made our feelings ultimate reality. We, we've taken God's word and we've said, actually, that's not true. That's down here. How I feel is very true. It's not faith in faith. What the author here is saying is he's saying the faith that will get you through the end is a faith that is 100% confident and fully believing that what Jesus said he's going to do, he's going to do. I would paraphrase it like this. I would paraphrase verse 1 like this. Faith looks like a firm and life-changing anticipation that God's future promises and unseen realities, realities are most real and worth living for. Faith is the Christian saying, I'm going to live now in a way that reflects that I really believe God's going to do what he said he's going to do. And that God did what he said he's gonna, what he, what, he, what he said he did. Faith is taking God at his word. Saying, God, I, I believe you. That's, that's what he's saying. And it's substantive. Now, there's a few questions you might be asking at this point. I want to speak to them. First of all, you might be saying, Sam, how can faith be absolute and still be considered faith? Because isn't faith kind of when you're not sure, but you believe anyways? Not Christian faith. Okay, not Christian. That's, that's Americanized Western faith. Okay, Faith, saving faith, is I believe it 100%. Now, then you might be asking, well, how can we be, how can we be expected to, to be sure about something that we can't see? Uh, I would suggest to you that you're sure of a lot of things you can't see. Okay? How many of you guys have been to North Korea? Really? None of you guys? You didn't been to North Korea. How many of you guys have been to North Korea? Why would you have been to North Korea? They wouldn't let you in. Okay. Or if you got in, you'd never get out. So how do you know it's real? How do you know it's real? How do you know North Korea is a real place? You bunch, you're liars. You're a bunch of liars. You're just a bunch of dumb, uh, uh, some, you're just assuming. You're, just, you're, just, you're, you're believing something that you've never seen. How do you know North Korea is real? Well, somebody told you. You have credible, you have credible eyewitness account. Now, some of you might disagree on, disagree on this one, but how do you, how do you know the moon's real? Like, well, you know, I see it. Yeah, but that could just be something else. I mean, that could, we could be the Truman Show. You could be in a dome and someone just painted it on the ceiling. Like, how do you know? Well, someone's been there. Okay, so you trust their word. You trust their word. Have you ever seen your beating heart? How do you know it's there? You, you, you believe somebody's telling you that there's a heart in there and you believe them because it's credible. Okay, so, so this idea that like, you, you know, Faith, believing something you haven't seen is, is ridiculous. Actually, every human being lives by faith every second of every day. Think about that. See, when you're telling someone the gospel and you're calling them to follow Jesus, you're not trying to talk them into faith. They already have faith. They have faith in something. Okay, you, you live your life based on what you think is true and most real. You do. All of us do. So, so the secular humanist is banking their life on the belief that there is no God because have they experienced the entire universe? No. So how could they possibly know there's no God? That's why I don't believe in atheists, right? Right, Mom? Uh, I don't believe in atheists. They don't exist. I've never, yeah. Uh, so th- th- everyone has faith. And, and, and in reality, what our job in, as Christian evangelists is not to get people to have faith. It's to get people to shift their faith to a different object, Jesus. Everyone is living lives of faith. 
So how can we be expected to be sure about something unseen? You know, the, the people the Hebrews was written to, they didn't see Jesus live. They didn't see Jesus raise. They believed because of credible eyewitnesses. And we have those same credible eyewitnesses written down here, and we have their manuscripts dated back to the first century. Okay? So we have good reason to have faith. Now, you might be saying, does this mean that my faith has to have zero doubt in order to be saving faith? No. Because your faith is like a child. It starts small. Is it any less of a child because it's an infant? No. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't give it a shovel and say, here, you know, go dig a hole. No, it's, it's an infant. It needs to grow. Our faith grows. It matures, okay? But here's the really good news, and I really want you to listen. If you're tuning out on me, I want you to really listen to this, okay? You're not saved by the quality or the quantity of your faith. You are saved by the object of your faith. There's no little red line up in the sky like the thermometer thing and that if you just believe enough and if you make this face, I believe that the little red line will pop and you'll get saved because the faith meter went off and now you're a believer. That's not how it works. Okay? It's not the quantity of your faith. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And it's not just the fact that you have the right object, it's the fact that you have actually believed by trusting, getting in the wheelbarrow. You know, Judas believed that Jesus was Lord. The Pharisees, I, I'm convinced even the Pharisees knew. Satan knows. Why is that not saving faith? Because it's not an act of faith. It's, it's, it's a belief that something exists, but it's not, I'm getting in the wheelbarrow and I'm going across, right? So, we need to grow our faith. We need to mature our faith. So, the second thing I want you to see, not only what faith is, but I've got to speed up, why we can have it. Now, the author here is going to give us reasons, two reasons, why we can have faith in Christ, why our faith in Jesus should be sure and steadfast. The first reason is this, in verse 2, because it brings the commendation of the Lord. Look at verse 2. Uh, he says, faith is assurance of things hoped for, the, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, that is faith, the people of old... That is, all believers who lived in the Old Testament, all believers that have ever lived, for by faith, the people of old received their commendation. What does that mean? Commendation means affirmation. It, it, it means that they were affirmed, praised by their faith. You know, I'll put it this way. Faith is the currency that God deals in. You know, God is not impressed with a single thing that you've done. You know, God didn't recruit you because you got a bunch of stuff that he wants you to do and he can't do it without you. You know, you know, God's not impressed by your religious, like God's not impressed that you got up and went to church this morning even though you were up too late last night. Like he's not impressed. God's not impressed that you gave some money or tithe or, or he's not impressed and, and he doesn't need anything from you. The commendation of the Lord does not come by our works. What, what is God pleased with? Because that's not very confident. Faith. 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 He, he's pleased when we trust him. He, he loves when we trust him. It pleases the God. It pleases the Lord. Now we're like, hey, God, you see how much stuff I did for you today? Yeah, you're really lucky to have me, aren't you? Aren't you glad you got me? Aren't you glad you saved me? I'm getting stuff done for the kingdom. Boom. No, that's not what's happening. God's like, I love it when you trust me. I love it when you come to me and say, God, I got nothing. Do stuff through me for your glory. That's what pleases him. So what does that matter? Well, the author here wants us to see that the reason that we should live lives of faith is because faith is the thing that pleases the Lord. And Christians live for what? To please the Lord. So the Christian, the, the number one question a Christian should ask about every single thing they do is, does this please the Lord? Does this please the Lord? Now, there's a sense in which the gospel has made you perfect and acceptable in Christ's righteousness. So it's not like God's up there, you know, beating him, his head like, oh, again, again. Like, he, he's pleased with you in the gospel. But the things that you do, he's pleased in when you do it out of faith and out of trust. Well, what does it mean to do things out of faith? What it means to do things out of faith is that you do it for him. And you do it the way he said. Even, listen, even if everybody thinks you're a lunatic, Welcome to Christianity. If somebody doesn't think you're a lunatic, I would be careful. 
Somebody needs to think here, and I'm not just talking about being an, you know, an obnoxious evangelical. Don't just be weird to be weird. But, okay, but if you're not getting heat from people saying you're stupid, you're selling the field, you're selling your, your, your plow to buy the field, you're an idiot. If nobody's saying that about you, your life may not be based on that much faith. See, Christians, we wake up from the matrix, right? We go, you know what? I don't live according to this world. I live according to an entirely different reality. And people that live in this fallen world, they're going to think I'm insane. They're going to think I'm crazy. But I am living for the commendation of the Lord. And this, guys, let me just say this. This is the only thing that will ever get you anywhere in your struggle with sin. Try to stop sinning because you're afraid of God. Doesn't work. Try to stop sinning because you're afraid of the circumstances. That might happen if you get caught. Doesn't work. Try to stop sinning by rules. Try to stop sinning by anything that you can come up with. It doesn't work. The only thing that will make you say no to sin is when you say yes to the, the commendation of the Lord. I would rather please God than please myself because that's a superior joy. There's no greater joy than knowing that you have pleased the Lord because he is the treasure in the field. He is the treasure, not your good works. Your good works in and of themselves are not satisfying. He's the treasure, trusting him, putting him first. And let me say this, you'll never have healthy relationships in this life until your taste is fully sunk in and satiated in the accommodation of the Lord first for all of your affirmation. You know, we as humans want affirmation so bad, don't we? We live for it. From the second, I mean, the second you're like two years old and you do something that you think your parents might think is impressive, you look over and you wait for it. Did mom notice? Did dad notice? You're in eighth grade and you do something stupid. The first thing you look over and see if your friends noticed. You know, we want to be affirmed. It's built into us. We want to be accepted, confirmed, uh, affirmed, and commended. And so what happens is we get this lust for people's affirmation, don't we? We just need a little bit more. A little more affirmation, a few more likes, a few more winks, a few more good jobs, a few more attaboys. And we just drink them up. And then we demonize the people that don't give them to us. And then you get in a relationship with someone because you want something from them, you want affirmation from them, you make them your idol, and then you demonize them when they don't give you what you want. Toxic, codependent relationships. All of it comes back to this one thing, and that is that we have to first be satisfied in the approval and the affirmation of God. And we don't do that by doing a bunch of cool stuff for God. We do that by trusting him, by taking him at his word, by coming with nothing and making him everything. When you're satisfied with God's affirmation, you have taken a seat at the table of God's inner Trinitarian life. You know, God is a community eternally, and he's perfectly satisfied within himself. He didn't create man and woman and earth because he needed something. He didn't need anything. He wanted to share himself with us. And when we begin to live a life of faith, we, 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 we pull ourselves up to the table of God's eternal inner Trinitarian love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, everything we need perfectly there. Jesus prayed for his disciples, I want them to experience the love that I've experienced from you and be satisfied in it. So we live a life of faith. Why? Because it is faith that brings the commendation of the Lord. I want you to try this week when you're dealing with your sin struggles, when you're dealing with decisions, when you're trying to make a decision, am I going to do what I know God wants me to do or am I going to do what I want to do? I want you to think about the joy of choosing to trust the Lord and choose that superior joy. Sell the field. Take the treasure. Now, one more thing and then we'll close. The second reason we can have faith in Christ is in verse three. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What in the world is he talking about? Why is he bringing this up? He brings our attention to Genesis chapter one, ex nihilo, it's called God made something out of nothing. God spoke and stuff appeared. So what came before stuff? God. So what does that mean about stuff? It means it's less real than where it came from. 
especially considering we live in a warped, contorted, twisted, fallen version of the stuff God even intended for it to be in the first place. What's his point here? His point is, he's saying, if you want to know what ultimate reality is, don't look at stuff, don't look at seen things, look at the word of God that spoke it into existence. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you can have faith because this is important. God's word is ultimate reality. Now, we have a hard time understanding that. We have a hard time believing that. Why? Because your word is not. Because you can say something and do something else. There can be incongruity between your word and your actions. We can do that because we're sinners. Satan can do that. He can lie. God cannot. He can't lie. He can't lie. Not only can he not lie, when he speaks, stuff happens. Stuff is created out of nothing. So the biblical author here is saying the reason that your faith should be steadfast, confident, sure, anchored to the substance of Jesus Christ is because his word is more real than anything you've ever experienced. And he cannot lie, Hebrews has told us before. If he said it, he's doing it. It's as good as done. And he's saying even though you can't see it right now and even though it's coming, even though it's future, even though it's hope, take it to the bank. It's real. That's Christian faith. I believe God. I take him at his word. I believe that he said it, so it's ultimate reality. He's saying that in Genesis 1, God spoke and creation came. And John, the apostle, tells us that in A.D. 30, God spoke again. Or A.D. 81, whatever, when Jesus came into this world, God spoke again. And because he spoke, creation is going to come out of that. We take that to the bank. So, let me wrap up. Maybe you're saying, Sam, there's a lot of philosophy and this and that. What, what, so what? What does that matter? What do I do with that? Now what? How does this all affect my life? Uh, let me give you just a quick story. I remember maybe six years ago when like 3D technology, it was like four years ago, five years ago, 3D technology first came out. You know those big goofy goggles people wear and they look dumb because they're like walk, wandering around. You know those things? This thing Mark Zuckerberg's investing money in for whatever reason. Um, anyways, so my buddy, he's like, hey, I got this 3D ocular thing, you need to come over and try it. I'm like, okay, so, so I come over, and he sits me in a chair. Have any of you guys done this? Anybody? Yeah, two people? Okay. Um, <laughs> all the, like, 20, 20-somethings are like, yeah, I've done it. Uh, all the 50-somethings are like, what are you talking about? Um, so, so he sits me in a chair, and he turns, and, and I know I'm in a chair, and I know I'm in the living room, you know, and it's like, there's not much around me, and I remember that. I put these on, and then, um, and then, and then he puts me in a flight simulator, so all of a sudden, I'm in a cockpit, and it feels pretty real, right? I'm like, oh, this is cool. So I'm kind of flying around. like, you know, so does anything happen? Like, are, you know, are planes going to attack me or something? He's all, well, why don't you climb out and get on the wing? And I was like, climb out and get on the wing? He's like, I'm like, can I do that? He's like, yeah, yeah, you can do it. So I'm like, okay. Like, I'm not kidding you. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is freaky. Like, it was so crazy. I mean, my brain was so convinced that I was out on a wing. And I like, I'm not, I'm not kidding. This is very real. I'm like walking out like, this really feels like I'm going to fall off this thing. But I did it. I walked out on the wing. Why did I do it? The reason is because even though everything in my brain was telling me and everything that I could see and everything I could sort of, my senses could understand was telling me that I was literally standing thousands of feet above the ground, I had a greater faith, a greater substance, a greater understanding of ultimate reality that even though I couldn't see it, I knew it was more real. So I got out on the wing. What's the worst going to happen? I'm going to fall over on the carpet, right? Now, I'm telling myself that, like, don't be a wuss. Don't be a wuss. Get out on the wing. You're only going to fall into the carpet, you know. Don't be a chicken. Like, that's kind of what was going on in my head. But here's my point, okay? My point is, even though my senses and what I could see was telling me one thing, I had a greater sense of reality. So bring that to Hebrews 11. Okay, the author here is writing this church of Jewish Christians who is waffling and tempted to to let go of Jesus and to drift back to the shadow of things, the shadow of Christ, the old covenant. And he's saying, hey, I know you got these glasses on. I know it feels like like, like Jesus is never going to come back and it feels like, you know, I want something tangible. He said, he's saying, remember ultimate reality is God's word. Remember that even though you don't see it yet, even though he hasn't come yet, take it to the bank. This is a Christian life. It's Christian faith. That's what we're supposed to do. So I I got a lot more, but I'm out of time, so I'm going to give you some advice, okay? Just some advice. Let me give you three suggestions 
on how to live a more faith-filled life. And I'll just go really fast. Number one, spend a lot more time and energy remembering and considering what the things hoped for in our text are. We, as Christians, you need to fill your mind, fill your life, fill your heart, fill your ears, fill your, your conversations with things hoped for. What are the things hoped for? I'll tell you. Freedom from sin's power. Anybody excited for that? Man, here's another one. Here's something we're hoping for as Christians. And by hope, I don't mean maybe it'll happen. I mean, it's happening. Buckle up. We hope for, we anticipate the reality of freedom from sin's presence. I can't wait till that's, that's good news. That's, that's, let's fill, let's fill our lives with that. Here's another thing we're hoping for. Access to God's presence. Unfettered, unrestricted access to God's presence. excited for that? How about this? We're hoping for resurrected bodies. 2.0, better, better bodies. That one got like weak, weak sauce reviews. Like, like nobody in here in pain, nobody groaning this morning. Like nobody had a zit this morning. Like I'm done with zits. Like nothing. Yeah, you had a zit. Okay, great. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Okay, here's another one. Here's the, here's the thing hoped for. Resurrected creation. God's going to rebirth the universe and it's going to be way cooler. And there's going to be mountains. I think there's going to be snowboarding. There's going to be adventure. There's going to be beaches. There's going to be relationship. There's going to be God's presence tangibly there. What is going to anchor our faith to Christ? It's continuing to focus on things hoped for because they are real. They're real. They're real. And just because you can't see them and just because they're not here yet does not mean that they're not real. Here's another one. Spend a lot of time getting to know the mind, the nature, and the expressed will of the one your faith is in by reading his word and reading about the life of Jesus Christ. You guys, your thing in your hand, hopefully it's not a phone, the thing in your hand, no judgment, a little, if you have a phone in your hand. <laughs> Just bring your Bible next week. Okay, the thing in your hand is God's living word about himself. I mean, we get to read God's word about himself. It's amazing. Number three, and this is really important, spend a lot of time getting to know the one you trust on a personal level. Because at the end of the day, Jesus didn't save you into a conceptual, cerebral um, understanding of something that's out there. He saved you into a personal relationship with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Read his word. Spend time with him. And fill your life thinking about the things hoped for. We've got a lot to hope for. And look weird. Look weird. Everyone thinks you're weird anyways. Get over it. They're going to think you're weird anyways. So it doesn't matter, okay? God, thank you so much for Hebrews. It's been such an encouragement to my heart. This week was so encouraging, Lord. Lord, the all week long, just getting to think about how thankful I am for the grace of faith. God, it's not that we're, we're just less gullible than the world. It's not that we're just more spiritual, more righteous, more holy. It's that we've been shown grace. So much grace. And we have this hope because our trust is in you. God, I pray that you would help our unbelief. I pray that you would take our faith in, in whatever level of maturity it is and that you would strengthen and you would grow it and that you would put the foundation stones, that you would put the, 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 the pillars of our life deep on bedrock of the gospel, unmoving, unchanging truth. And even this world gets crazy, and even if persecution happens, and even if we lose our, our franchise in this world, or even if, if stuff gets, we, we know our value, our treasure in the field is ours because we have it in Jesus. So Lord, I pray that we would be a church that perseveres, that has saving faith, and that we would make decisions this week because we want to please you, that we would choose your will over our own. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, God bless you guys. Hope you have a great rest of your afternoon. See you later.